Hello, everybody, and welcome back to EpiCentral. I'm your host, Maddie Lewis, infectious disease epidemiologist. And in today's episode, I'm going to discuss germ theory versus terrain theory, because apparently some people don't believe in germs. Okay, let's get right into it. So you heard me right, some people do not believe in germ theory. By the way, germ theory is basically the idea that certain pathogens, aka germs, can cause disease. Of course, pathogens are bacteria, viruses, fungi, parasites, etc. Before germ theory was accepted into the scientific community, there were many other ideas of what caused disease. These are really interesting, so let's go through some of them. One of my favorites is called miasma theory, which is bad air. It's the idea that what caused disease was bad smells, which is really interesting because it's not too crazy or far off. Essentially, bad smells are a confounder. Bad smells often come with disease like bad breath, diarrhea, vomit, pustules, and although we know that it's not causing the disease, it's cool that they recognize that they were associated with disease. By the way, I'll explain what a confounder is. It's a term we use a lot in epidemiology and in research. So basically in epi, there are exposures, which are like causes, and there are diseases, which are like the effects of those causes. But a confounder is like something else that often comes along with both the exposure and the disease, but because it's so involved, people will sometimes mistake the confounder for the exposure or for the cause of the disease itself. Anyway, back to miasma, bad smells. So obviously that was wrong. And where it also went wrong was that it was more about getting sick from a shared environment, like shared bad air, but miasma didn't recognize the transmission of disease that can happen between two people. Another fun fact about miasma is that this theory was popular during the Black Plague, and that's why doctors would wear those creepy bird beak-like masks. They would stuff those bird beak-like mask things with flowers and herbs, kind of like potpourri, um, to keep the bad air out so that they wouldn't get sick themselves. Another really common belief back in the day that some people actually still hold today is that disease was caused by evil spirits. So there's a lot of different ideas like this, but and they're all somewhat similar. It could be evil spirits or punishment from God or something like that. Although I'm going to go ahead and say I think a lot of people who still believe in this nowadays do believe in pathogens and disease, but that God used those to then punish people. However, I do know there are groups who believe that evil spirits are the cause of disease, not germs, and that you can actually get rid of illness by doing an exorcism or some kind of thing like that, you know, getting rid of evil spirits or praying, repenting, whatever. Back in the day, there was also humoral theory, hopefully I'm saying that right, which is the idea that there are four things in the body, phlegm, yellow bile, black bile, and blood. And if one of these is out of disequilibrium, aka out of balance, then that is what causes disease. Okay, that was pretty quick, and those are just a fraction of the theories used to explain disease back in the day. But the current accepted theory we have now is called germ theory. So who exactly formed germ theory of disease? Well, you could definitely argue that it developed kind of slowly over the centuries, and it didn't happen all at once. One of these people was called Agostino Bassi. I don't know if I'm saying that right. Apologies. This person was an entomologist, which is like a bug expert, 
And in the early 1800s, he found that a certain disease in silkworms was caused by a microorganism. And in 1844, he discovered that this not only happened in subbugs, but perhaps in humans as well. Another person who contributed to germ theory is someone called Ignaz Simmelweis. I think I'm saying that right. He was a Hungarian doctor who was credited with discovering that hand-washing prevented disease. And I love talking about this part of public health history. So Ignaz Semmelweis was an obstetrician, aka a pregnancy doctor, and he started to realize that patients who were under the care of doctors and medical students were actually dying at much higher rates than people that were um, being treated by midwives. So he investigated the situation and started actually writing down numbers and statistics and he found that this association was true. And then he started investigating it even more, and he realized that these doctors and med students were more often coming straight from doing autopsies. And back then, hand washing was not a thing. It was actually often discouraged because some people thought that water caused disease, which isn't all the way wrong because there are waterborne diseases. And if the water is not sanitized or clean, then obviously that can and cause disease. So Semmelweis began an experiment where he made the doctors wash their hands before treating patients, which was not a thing back then, like I said, but it worked. And the death rate dropped in his hospital from 18% to 2.2% for these pregnant women. But what I think is the most interesting part of this story is that Semmelweis was not, these ideas were not accepted by the medical community. Actually, a lot of people were offended and thought he was dumb because germ theory was not confirmed at the time. And he really couldn't give like good scientific evidence to back up his claims, even though the mortality rate did speak for itself. The sad part of the story is that Semmelweis had a nervous breakdown and had to go to an asylum where he was was beaten and then died. And what might be the craziest part of this story is that hand washing didn't become part of the standard practices in American healthcare until 1980. 1980! Which is so crazy because that's well past when germ theory was confirmed and accepted. And hand washing is now considered one of the easiest ways to prevent disease, basically any disease. By the way, did you guys have to wash your hands before lunch in elementary school? I'm pretty sure my elementary school made us wash our hands before lunch, which is really good. And if there's any teachers listening to this, please make your students wash your, their hands before lunch or snack time or whatever. And the sad thing is, I don't remember ever washing my hands before lunch in middle school or high school just because it wasn't like required. Like the teacher would just take us to lunch and we never stopped by the bathroom like we did in elementary school. Looking back, that's really icky, and they definitely should have encouraged us to use hand sanitizer, but that's just that just wasn't a thing. I'm pretty sure it's more common now because of COVID, which is good, to at least use hand sanitizer, which is totally fine, um, but I don't know, hand washing should be more common. Anyway, let's move on. So then there was John Snow, which some people refer to him as the father of epidemiology because he conducted a really cool outbreak investigation in London. You might have heard of it. 
He mapped people who were getting cholera and noticed that they were getting their water from the same water pump, which was called the Broad Street Pump to be exact, and it's really famous. And you can actually go see it in London today. The reason that he's considered the father of Epi is because we still use similar methods that he used to investigate outbreaks as epidemiologists. So we will literally map where people will get sick and then look at similar behaviors and exposures and see if there are patterns and similarities and then investigate further. I don't know if you guys remember in the beginning of COVID, I remember seeing a map of people sitting in a restaurant and where the vents were located and who got sick first and who got sick after that. And so people still use these methods. Okay, let's really get into it by talking about Louis Pasteur. I don't honestly know if I'm saying that right, so apologies to the French people. So Louis Pasteur was a French scientist in the 1860s, and he conducted these experiments of pasteurization, which is the heating of liquid. So basically at the time, people would know that their food or their liquids could spoil. So nutrient broth, like chicken broth, beef broth, that would spoil and go bad. Wine, milk would obviously go bad, but they thought it was the air that made these things go bad. They didn't exactly know what was causing it. But Pasteur thought maybe there were microorganisms, so organisms, things that are alive that we can't see, that actually caused the spoiling. And he showed that when he heated liquids, aka pasteurized them, and enclose them, and then they wouldn't spoil. Which I don't know if there's any canning people on here, but if you do canning as a hobby, I think you're really cool. And it's basically the same idea. You heat something up in an enclosed environment, and because it's enclosed, new microorganisms can't get in, and therefore the product doesn't spoil. And of course, the idea with canning is that you can make these shelf-stable items. So canning, like obviously when you go to the grocery stores and there's cans of food, they use the same processes they're just more industrial I guess and then you can actually do it at home but the practice itself is a little finicky and you really have to follow very specific guidelines and instructions and exact ingredients or you put yourself at risk for messing it up and completely giving yourself diseases but it's a really cool hobby and if you grow your own food it's great because a lot of times if you're growing like huge batches in a homemade garden then you can't like keep everything or eat everything all at once so people will start canning them. So anyway, back to pasture. So he hypothesized that maybe these microbes that are causing food to spoil um, are also causing disease in humans as well. So he is now known as one of the fathers of germ theory. Okay, and with that information out of the way, let's get into germ theory denialism. So yes, there are indeed a somewhat loud minority of people who are germ theory denialists. They don't believe that germs cause disease. That's what they believe. They instead believe in terrain theory most often, and that's the idea that disease develops when the body is operating in bad conditions, such as when it's exposed to toxins or when it's experiencing too much inflammation or something like that, bad environment. Basically, the terrain is the hospitable or an inhospitable environment. Whew, that's a hard word to say, aka the body. So one of the main scientists who debated this idea was alive at the same time as Louis Pasteur, and they were even considered rivals. I love that. Frenemies. His name was Antoine Bacamp, or Bachamp, I don't know how to speak French. Wee oui, wee. Oui. 
Do French people just hate Americans? I think I would if I was French. So Bechamp, Bechamp, I don't know what to call him, said that bacteria could not infect a healthy human or animal and cause disease. He had a completely alternative view of what microbes were. He thought they were polymorphic, which are basically shapeshifters. He believed in shapeshifting. His idea was that microbes completely shapeshifted or morphed into different types of living things through their lifespan, kind of like metamorphosis. So I guess that kind of exists, but not really. It's a little different. Honestly, it's quite confusing to me. Um, go ahead and look up the Wikipedia article about this or just look it up on the internet. It's very interesting, um, very confusing, and very untrue. But the idea is is pathogens don't cause disease, it's having an already unhealthy body or environment that allows the body to dysfunction, aka get sick. But what I find really funny about this whole germ theory versus terrain theory debate is that terrain theory isn't all the way wrong. But hear me out. Infectious disease is actually a lot more complicated than just getting exposed to a pathogen equals getting sick. There are so many things that go into infectious disease and people getting sick from them. And I think that's where this whole germ theory versus train theory debate is interesting. So let me explain more. First of all, not all bacteria or microbes are bad. And I'm sure everybody knows this. And I'm sure some people listening to this even take probiotics. So anyway, we actually need many types of bacteria to live and thrive. I'm sure that some of you have heard this statistic but we actually have more microbes in our body than we have cells making up our own body. And another fun fact is that we used to actually think we had a lot, lot more bacteria. People would quote the scientist who reported that there was like a 10 to 1 ratio of bacteria to human cells, but this has been debunked or more like updated a little bit. Current estimates are more like a 1.3 to 1 ratio on average, Although this doesn't exactly take account all situations involving viruses since they're very small and they can come in pretty big numbers. Second, I want to point out that the body is generally more susceptible to getting disease or getting sick when the body is functioning poorly which is what people call terrain, and that's absolutely true. For example, if your immune system is already suppressed or compromised, you will not only get sick easier, but you are more likely to get more severely ill. For example, if you have a chronic disease like cancer, diabetes, obesity, etc. And I think a big misunderstanding through this pandemic in general has been that people who believe in this alternative science, let's just call it, have viewed public health as only focusing on infectious disease, when in fact we focus on a lot more than just infectious disease. We talk a lot about chronic diseases and general health. I mean, I can't even tell you how much of our schooling focused on social determinants like poor housing, racism, low income, etc., and other environmental factors that we know affects people's health. So where terrain theory and germ theory denialism definitely go wrong is this idea that pathogens don't cause disease. It's just fundamentally incorrect. I don't even know where to start in presenting the overwhelming evidence for this, and I'm not going to get too far into it because this isn't an epidemiology lecture, but there is overwhelming evidence to back this up. So first of all, we know microbes exist. We can actually see them under microscopes, or at least many of them. Viruses are really, really small, so we can't always see them with certain technology, but 
whatever. We can also literally take these microbes out of organisms. We can isolate them, we can grow them, and we can put them back into a different organism, which is essentially the idea of Koch's postulates, if you've ever heard of that, which is another public health history moment. Basically, these postulates were made to decide if an organism caused a disease. And that was basically the postulates. You had to take it out of the organism, you had to isolate the pathogen, grow the pathogen, and then put it back into a different organism, and that different organism had to reproduce the same disease. And this doesn't apply to all pathogens, but we can get to that later. There's some flaws with that, we don't actually use that, but the fact that we can do that with so many different diseases is just more evidence that pathogens exist and they cause disease. You can actually control the environment in which this transmission occurs. Also, we can not only visualize the pathogens, but we can like stain them and look at them under microscopes because often you can't just like see them floating around, although sometimes you can. Like if I had the equipment right now, I could take a blood sample of someone who has malaria, I could literally smear that blood onto a slide, I could stain it with a couple different stains, and then look at it under a microscope and I could actually see the pathogen that causes malaria. And then if you take uh, most people who are not sick with malaria, most of them, but you know, not always, then you're not gonna most likely find the plasmodium or the parasite that causes malaria. That doesn't always work with diseases like I'm saying because some people can carry a pathogen or be colonized with it and not actually get sick. Anyway, we can also see how the body reacts to these pathogens. We can track the immune response by looking at the concentration of white blood cells. We can look at inflammation, inflammation factors. We can look at the symptoms that these diseases cause and how there's similarities between different pathogens. There are so many different ways that we study infectious diseases and the evidence is really overwhelming. I really don't know what else to say. I think what a lot of germ theory denialists get wrong is they think that Louis Pasteur's work was the end-all be-all of evidence for germ theory, when in fact there's been decades of replicated experiments, technology, microscopes, staining. We have antibiotics. We can literally smear uh, these samples of, of bacteria onto an auger plate, which is those little um, like jelly plates that you see bacteria grow on. And we can put antibiotics on these slides and watch the bacteria not grow next to the antibiotics or on top of the antibiotics. And then it's like you give the antibiotic to someone with the pathogen and it works. Like there are just so many different things that make up the evidence for this. Another really interesting thing that makes up um, evidence for germ theory is challenge trials, aka controlled human infection trials, where scientists purposely expose participants to a pathogen. Yes, this is real research that people do, and it is legal, and there are ethical questions for sure that come with these trials, but that kind of ethical discussion is for a different time. I looked at a study, and about 10 of 13 of the participants in one of these studies got sick. So almost every single person exposed to a particular pathogen got sick in this trial. And obviously they give like high doses or differing doses of the specific pathogen because they like want you to get sick. 
But that's just another thing is like you can induce disease in people's bodies by introducing pathogens. If terrain theory fully explained how people got disease, then that wouldn't be possible. By the way, wouldn't it be crazy to sign up for a challenge trial? That would just be insane. I know they do pay you a lot more, I think, for these studies. I wonder if anybody listening to this has ever been in one. I doubt it. They're they're not very common. I would definitely not sign up for that. Absolutely not, especially because the ones I've heard of are mainly like COVID and norovirus. And I just hate getting sick. I'm not going to do it. Not for money, not for anything. Anyway, um, then of course, there's the epidemiology or the patterns in which disease spread through populations. And if you've ever been a part of an outbreak, then uh, then you've seen this right in front of your eyes. I know for me, I was a very healthy, probably 14-year-old. I went to my cousin's birthday party one year, and a lot of people got stomach bug. And it's like, there's no coincidence that we all had the same symptoms, vomiting, stomach cramps, for relatively the same amount of time, which was about 24 hours, all because our terrain happened to be bad at the same time, like those kind of coincidences don't make sense or can be explained by terrain theory. So I actually went to a germ theory denialist on TikTok. No, I'm not interviewing them for this podcast. I would never do that to you all. No conspiracy theorists on here. But I did ask them in the comments um, on one of my videos how that type of outbreak situation is possible if germs don't exist or cause disease. And he said that that was probably caused by millimeter waves and 5G. So yeah, we gotta love the conspiracy theorists. They really come up with anything. And then I asked how outbreak situations happen um, in countries or areas that are more remote and don't have exposure to those type of waves or whatever. And he said um, in Africa, they might be more susceptible to frequency and millimeter waves due to environmental conditions. They will really make up and pull out anything. And of course, a lot of this comes down to the fact that this is just simply a conspiracy theory or just like this anti-intellectual theory. It comes down to the fact that a lot of these people that believe in these types of theories, they don't trust the government. They don't trust scientists. They think that scientists are these like money-hungry people that get paid by the government. And man, do I wish that was true. I wish the government paid me more. Unfortunately, they don't. And I think it's really a sign of the times in 2021 that people are believing these types of ridiculous things because over the last two years, we've really seen this uptick in anti-science, anti-intellectualism, the distrust and the conspiracy theories. And it all started with the COVID-19 pandemic, and these theories started very early on in the pandemic, which is not at all surprising. I think really anybody could have predicted um, some level of, you know, anti-science and science denialism, but I really didn't know that it would become so rampant. I don't think I would have predicted that. I mean, QAnon, like that... That's crazy. The wild thing about these conspiracy theories that I don't understand is that no matter how much you try to explain that it's literally impossible for so many people to conspire together, and no matter how much compelling good evidence that you have and that you present to people, you can't change their minds because they literally operate in a different reality than you do. That's the wild thing to me is the idea that all of these scientists and doctors 
and nurses and like 95% of the medical field would all come together to conspire. It just doesn't make sense, nor would it ever be possible for that many people to to know that something is not true and then to just lie. And it's like a lot of these people that work in this field aren't even always paid. Like imagine all of the students who work in labs, um, studying infectious diseases who are unpaid, all of the low-wage workers which with high turnover, all of the people that run testing centers for COVID and vaccine centers. It's like, you really think all of these people <laughs> All of these people are just faking stuff. I don't know. It, it doesn't make sense to me. And of course, I just hate conspiracy theories. I think they're incredibly harmful. And a lot of them are anti-Semitic and racist and sexist and just a lot of things. There's a lot going on in those theories. However, I was still, it still is interesting to me to take a step back and kind of relearn all this evidence that supports germ theory and, you know, look at the history of public health. And sometimes it's just interesting to look at these alternate explanations of how the world works, even when you know that they're absolutely bonkers. Well, actually, if anybody has any conspiracy theories that they truly believe in, please email me at epicentralpodcast at gmail.com. I really want to know. For me, my favorite is the mattress firm conspiracy theory. And I don't want to get sued, so I have to make this very clear that this is not true. However, the idea that some people claim is that um, there's too many mattress firms around for it to be legit. Like, it just doesn't make sense. Actually, I have an activity for everybody to do, unless you're driving. So if you're able, pull out your phone and go to your location and then search up mattress firm in your city. How many mattress firms are there? I'll go to mine. Okay, it looks like in my area, there's about 20 mattress firms in the city I'm living in. And to put that into perspective, I also looked up Taco Bell, and there's about 20 of them in the same area. So anyway, um, there's too many mattress firms, and the idea that is not true is that they're a money laundering scheme, which means they're not really a company. Well, they are, but it's, it's the idea that they're a front for some sketchy business, like drug dealing, trafficking, and other bad things. But of course, this is not true. I don't want to get sued. Other evidence is that they're open too late and like nobody's ever in there, but they're always open. And like people don't need to buy mattresses that often. You buy them how, how often? Like every five to 20 years. So why are there just as many mattress firms in my city as there are Taco Bell? When in college, I got Taco Bell once a week at least, twice a week. Which, by the way, if you're a vegetarian, Taco Bell is the elite fast food. And I will die on that hill. I will also die on the hill that Taco Bell is not that unhealthy if you make it vegan or vegetarian. It's really not, okay? If anything, I would say it's decently nutritious. I don't know. I'm not I'm not a dietitian. Don't listen to me. But I think... I think we should make a Taco Bell diet. That's what I think. I don't know. I come up with too many bad ideas. Um, today, I was talking about starting a cult, actually. But I feel like the cult idea is actually really good. Just hear me out, okay? 
First of all, not to be conceited, which I kind of am, but I do think I would be a good cult leader. Maybe not the main leader, but I think I would be good on like an executive board of a cult. I'm not sure if they have those. I think I would make a really good vice president of social affairs if that exists. I don't know. I did social stuff like formal for my sorority and I helped with social stuff with other clubs and now I'm on the social committee at work and I just think I have the resume. So if anybody's interested in having me, no, I don't want to join a cult. I want to start one. So never mind. But if anybody wants to start one with me, let me know. I'm just kidding. You guys calm down. But anyway, that is my favorite conspiracy theory that is absolutely not true. Don't sue me again. I've said that enough times. I don't have the money for that. Honestly, that would be such a boss babe move though. Like petty lawsuits are so, I honestly really admire people that go through with them. Like that boss babe who tried to um, claim there was a finger in her Wendy's chili. Do you guys remember that? I listened to a podcast about that and it was all fraud. It was not real. And I think she went to prison. Or like, remember when the Church of Satan or whatever it was, they sued Sabrina, um, the Netflix show about the about the witch. They sued the show for using the imagery from the Church of Satan. I just love petty lawsuits. Anyway, I want to make this podcast longer, so I'm just going to go ahead and talk about my life a little bit, and then I'm going to give some tips for epidemiology students or pre-epi students or whatever. I'm just going to answer some questions that I get from TikTok. Well, first of all, this week has been pretty good. Um, I think the exciting thing this week is that I went to Dick's Sporting Goods yesterday, and I bought so much stuff for like $100. So I started playing pickup soccer recently, and it's been so fun. I used to play soccer in high school. Well, actually, I started when I was like six. I wanted to start when I was five, but I broke my arm, and that's a different story for another time. Um, So I started when I was six and then I played up until like third or fourth grade and then I quit because I was scared of the ball. Yes, I was scared of the ball. I got so scared I would run away from it. I don't know. Fear is a weird thing. But then I became unscared of the ball again and then I started playing again. And at which point I wanted to play competitive soccer. This is this was like, I don't know, eighth grade or something. Seventh. I, I don't know. Sixth grade. I think it was sixth grade. And, you know, honestly, I was never that good. Like, I was always just, like, good enough (laughs) to make the team. (laughs) But I had a lot of fun, and I played with my bestie, Isabella. Shout out if she's listening to this. Um, If any of her family's listening to this, you know I love all of you. And then I think I quit again, and then, like, a couple years later, I picked it up again in high school. And this is my favorite part of my soccer career. Um, it's when I tried out sophomore year of high school after not playing for a couple years and I was just good enough to make C team, but not good enough that they would move me up to JV or varsity. But I was the only sophomore that wasn't on JV or varsity. I was the only sophomore to make C team. So they made me C team captain, probably because of my personality and not because of my skills. And it was so fun. And that was the last time I played soccer. And then I played like one or two pickup games in college and grad school. So in college, I tried playing intramural with my Globe Med team. We were a bunch of nerds. And well, it was the athletic, sort of athletic nerds. 
Um, I hope some of them are listening to this. I love Globe Med. And that was the first time I played in several years. Um, That was like four. Oh my God. No. Okay. So the last time I played was sophomore year of high school and I didn't play intramural until senior year. And I played one game and it went well, but I was so out of shape because I never worked out in college. Like not once did I ever work out except the occasional yoga class. Never went to the gym, not once ever. Actually, I took a weights class for an easy A with my friend Nadia. I'm just shouting out any friend to test if they're um, actually listening to this. Anyway, um, so didn't work out. And so the second intramural game my senior year Um, I tore a muscle, which was really unpleasant and very painful. And it was literally like the last week or two of my college career. And we were taking pictures for graduation for my sorority. And my leg was swollen like a sausage. But luckily, my dress covered it like up to my knee, which was like, I don't know what muscle that is that's like in your thigh, but that's the one I pulled like the front of your thigh, not the back of it. You would never think that I read medical charts all day for my job because I don't know what muscle that is. Anyway, and then I played a pickup game in grad school and then I broke my toenail and my friend Daniel had to carry me across a park because I was bleeding and my sandal couldn't go over my bleeding foot, half broken toenail. And so, and I didn't want to walk barefoot and like get an infection (laughs) so my friend carried me (laughs) so the last couple times i played soccer before now have been disastrous but luckily in the beginning of this summer starting in may after i graduated i decided girl you need to get into shape i had not worked out in so long and with covid it had just been so long and even going on a walk i was winded okay i remember i did a hike with some friends it was like a two mile hike um and it was like kind of up a mountainy hill area and oh my god I was sore for like two weeks so I was like girl like get yourself into shape like this is unhealthy I'm gonna get heart disease or something and so so it's like I'm gonna start working out so I did and I've been working out for the last like four or five months and I'm in significantly better shape so for the last month um my some of my friends invited me to play pickup soccer they have like a little team And I've been playing with them and it's the highlight of my week. I'm obsessed with soccer now. And I've gone to a few soccer games, like professional soccer games, and they are so fun. Like I am so obsessed with soccer now, except that I know nothing about like when people are like Manchester United, girl, I don't, I don't know. I don't even really know the rules. I just like, I think I just like liking soccer. Okay, that was that was a long caveat. Anyway, so I the highlight of my week is that I went to Dick's Sporting Goods because I really needed to buy cleats and some other items. The reason being for the cleats is um, I've been playing co-ed pickup games where these guys weigh like, you know, like 30 to 50 pounds more than I do. And um, they keep stepping on me with their cleats. And my shoes, the top of my shoes are so like thin that it's basically just another sock on top of my foot which offers no protection for when I get stepped on and also you know they get a little slippery they're not meant for soccer and they're a little bulky so I was like I I really need to get cleats like mainly for the foot protection 
I should be wearing shin guards too because I have bruises all over my ankles um, from getting kicked by me, by these dudes. But um, but I'm not going to do that. I bought socks instead. I don't know if the socks will offer protection, but you know, I thought about this earlier and I think they should make stick on shin guards like they make stick on <laughs> stick on boobs or the stick on uh, the like the sticky boobs, you know? <laughs> I'm sorry. I think I'm so funny. But really, like I think they should make those, except that they would be horrible. They would they would just slip off and like, oh my god, that would be a disaster. But how good of an invention would that be? I'm selling that to Dick Sporting Goods Corporate. Okay, back to my point. Um, I also needed some workout clothes because despite the fact that I've been working out for the last couple months, I have like literally one pair of shorts one i have two pairs of biker shorts um and two sports bras uh the sports bras are both from high school <laughs> i just never bought workout clothes or really athleisure at all because i never worked out and life hack if you happen to be an extra small or small possibly in women's then go to the kids section okay i saved some money so I got a pair of cleats for $20 because the cleats guy at Dick's, I don't know, he like went to the back to find some of my size and I guess they just had some clearance back there and he handed me a pair that fit me perfectly that were $20, which is really good price for cleats. So I was like, hell yeah. And then I got a sports bra and some shorts and a pair of socks and a soccer ball for $100. I could have easily spent that $100 on one pair of actual nice cleats, but but I'm too cheap for that. And that was the highlight of my week, I would say. And I also dropped some money at Abercrombie, um, which <laughs> you guys, okay, hear me out. I know Abercrombie, like you hear it and you're probably like cringe, Maddie, what are you doing? What are you wearing? But oh my God, Abercrombie and Fitch is so cute now. Um, if you're listening to this, Abercrombie and Fitch, please let sponsor me. Is that how you say it? Or I sponsor you? No, you sponsor me. Wait, right? I don't know. I love, okay, I don't love fast fashion. Like, obviously, it's not good, but um, it'd be hella cute, y'all. Go to Abercrombie and Fitch. Look at their clothes. They are so cute now. They don't have logos on literally any of their clothes anymore. They completely dropped the Moose logo and the ANF and all of that. And they're just cute now. And I bought a bunch of clearance. So I bought like two sports bras or no, three sports bras and two tops for like $90, which is really good for Abercrombie and Fitch. Everything was like $15 or something. Did I do that math right? I don't know. I don't usually shop this much, but um, I don't know. It just happened. So that was the highlight of my week. Okay, now I'm going to answer a commonly asked question on my TikTok about epidemiology and how to become an epidemiologist. And that is, what should I major in or what classes should I take to get into grad school or to prepare for grad school? So most graduate programs that I've seen to get a Master of Public Health, um, they don't require a specific major, but the most popular one that I know of uh, among all the epidemiologists that I've interacted with was biology which is also what I majored in. I got my Bachelor of Arts in Biology. It was kind of miserable though. Um, don't know if I recommend that, but um, it is common because a lot of people actactually start out pre-med or pre-nursing, like pre 
PA or whatever, and then later on decide that they actually want to become an epidemiologist. That is very, very common. And I don't want people to hear that and think that like we're just like med school rejects. <laughs> I think most people I know just never even applied to med school. They just became uninterested early enough and then applied to uh, get their MPH instead which is kind of what I did, um, but not with med school. I did that with PA school. And I planned on maybe going back to get my, like, go be a PA. But <laughs> with the pandemic, I'm like, hell no, I'm not doing healthcare. Absolutely not. Plus, I love the fact that I can work from bed and just save all my energy all day. So at the end of the day, I can go to Target and spend money and hang out with friends and go party on the week. Okay, I don't really party during the week, but I could if I wanted to. Like, I can imagine how much energy I would have left over if I was working in a hospital. I think I would have zero energy and you'd be all around all those germs and sick people. That's so disgusting. I love reading people's medical charts instead. It's great. And I work less. Like, I definitely work the 40 hours a week or, you know, whenever you're done completing tasks. But a lot of PAs that I've talked to, they work about 50 hours a week just because it takes a lot of time to, like, write notes. Anyway, back to the question. Biology is a good major um, because it does prepare you to understand the human body or anything similar to that. So, like, physiology, chemistry, all of those are good, but definitely not required at most grad schools. Most grad schools will take any major as long as you have certain classes. My school that I went to required, um, I think it was like a biology class or two and then like a math class or something. And I'm pretty sure some grad schools don't require any particular classes, but I wouldn't be surprised if having like a couple credits of science and a couple credits of math were like a pretty common requisite to get into grad school. And even if they're not, I definitely would recommend taking them because uh, <laughs> don't enter a science field without um, taking science first. Science sounds cool and interesting, and it really is, but um, if you're a scientist, you know that those classes aren't really that easy. It's not a walk in the park, and so you should really figure out what you're signing up for. In particular, classes I would take are anatomy and physiology just because you can get a better understanding about the human body and about like medicine type stuff. Medical terminology I would definitely take. I took medical terminology and then withdrew because <laughs> I forgot to take a test and the highest grade I could get was a C, so I withdrew. But I didn't really need it. Like I was just taking it so it was on my resume or whatever, but I was a CNA, a certified nurse assistant, um, so I already knew all the medical terminology, like all of the basics, so. And I would take uh, statistics because you will be taking statistics and doing a lot of that if you become an epidemiologist, so you might as well figure out what you're signing up for and take the undergrad class, biostatistics in particular, if they have it at your undergrad. And I would recommend for anybody, regardless of the career you're taking, to um, also take public speaking or writing courses if they're not already required. Those will just help you in all areas of life and in your career. I can't tell you how much more success that I've had because I have speech writing skills and just writing skills in general. 
I have I have gotten scholarships, I've gotten jobs because of cover letters. So much of life and being successful in a career um, and being being successful professionally uh, depends on your writing skills. Like I would say a good like like 80% sometimes will depend on your communication skills. So speaking and writing. I mean, you can lump in social skills with that too, but yeah, just get your writing down. And also, if you're a bad writer, uh, <laughs> then it can be really embarrassing because people will have to read your writing at some point during a job, whether that's in an email or, you know, whatever. You have to write in any job, really. And having other people read your writing when you're a bad writer is so embarrassing. And I have to say, I'm very privileged to have the education that I have. And that's why I have the skills that I have. It has nothing to do with my character, obviously, or, you know, how great of a person I am. It's really just the privilege, the blessing of having a good education. So if you have access to education like I did, please take writing very seriously. Okay, that's my tips. Thank you for listening to this episode about germ theory. I hope you found it interesting, entertaining, funny maybe, I don't know. I had fun recording it, so I hope everybody has a great week and I'll talk to you all next week. Bye!